Hello, you are listening to a recording of the session, Patience is a Virtue and a Testimony of a Good God by Shelley Schwam, that was presented at the Mockingbird Conference in September of 2023 in Minneapolis. However, uh, the recording was lost, and so this is a recreation of that session and its content uh, to be shared. Patience is a virtue and a testimony of a good God. Uh, As I considered what to talk about under the theme, Grace Under Pressure, uh, patience seemed to come to mind. Uh, Maybe you've heard this phrase before, patience is a virtue. I remember many days of being an impatient teenager, cruising down the stairs uh, with a uniform that needed to be washed or a paper that needed to be signed and hustling into the kitchen to stand next to my mom with so much urgency and uh, with the the gentleness and stability that only came from lots of years of teaching in elementary school and raising three teenage daughters. I don't think often she would even raise her eyes, but she would just softly say, patience is a virtue. And uh, I clearly probably helped her Uh, In gaining some of that patient practice, uh, she loves to tell the story around my birthday of how long it took uh, for her being in labor with me before I was born. And she would tease and joke and say, you were taking your time, you're content to take your time, Shelly, and you've been taking your time ever since. And so it's funny that waiting and patience has been a thought project for me throughout my adult life. And even uh, when we consider how many times throughout scripture this topic comes up, it's worthy of exploration. Uh, I think about Psalm 27 is one of my favorite uh, references of this. I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. Uh, I could spend the whole time just talking about biblical references, even about patience uh, and waiting and how this is evidence of goodness, uh, both in what God is up to in us and through us. Uh, But I wanted to take some time. um, You can do some digging in that way. And I even had some resources prepared to share as well um, of a Bible search, but I wanted to take some time to look at what does our current cultural moment require? Uh, And also, perhaps, what does church history have to teach us um, about how we can be people of patience? Uh, What difference does the good news of Jesus make? And so uh, there are four different frames of patience that I want us to to look at and and focus our conversation on kind of four different areas of patience that I noticed showing up. So the first would be delay, patience in delay, waiting things out, right? Uh, Secondly, patience in discomfort. How do we endure uh, when things aren't quite quite right? Uh, What's our ability to be patient in that? Patience in distress, when when the ante is up, upped a bit more, 
and we are really challenged. How do we handle that with patients? And then patients in disillusionment uh, to, to press back against the temptation to just write it all off and, and be disillusioned about the world. And so when we look at today, patience in delay uh, is just not a part of our experience in our instant gratification um, sort of norms in 2024. We can Google an answer within seconds, right? Uh, when we're having a disagreement about some sort of fact of you know, really anything, any statistic, any any sort of piece of information, who that actor or actress was, um, our hunger can be solved with just a 30-minute delivery from DoorDash, right? Uh, Amazon holds the solution for most of our household issues and could likely be delivered by the next day. Uh, our expectations even of one another are so instant. Instant replies to emails or texts, etc., uh, that that we expect that instant response and reply, and get frustrated when we don't have it. And let's be honest, you really see someone's true colors come through uh, when you see how they behave when they have slow internet, right? Look at our cultural landmark norms for people's story. Uh, if I'm not married and have a bachelor's and babies by the age of 30, then I'm doing it wrong. We don't do well with delay uh, today. And so it, it just makes me wonder, what does instant gratification as our cultural norm, what does that do for our soul? What is the what is the wear and tear that instant gratification is taking on our on our souls? Then our second frame of discomfort today, we war against discomfort, right? Three out of five people, according to CableTV.com, uh, have a comfort TV show that they watch when they're anxious. I know I do. Are you guys with me? Like, The Office is my go-to. The the lullaby of da 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 just everything can be right in the world with that little theme song. Or think about your comfort foods. There is a whole market uh, selling us the comfort that we deserve, right? Uh, so pay attention to those ads. It doesn't take long to notice that comfort it is a high motivator for us. And so we're challenged uh, to deal with discomfort because it's such a high value. I, this is a bold statement, but I think if I could identify our biggest idol in the United States today, that it just might be comfort. We avoid pain above all else. Now, to be fair, we have all endured a pandemic and all of its trappings. There are things to cope with for sure, but this has to be our, this has become our primary goal is to live comfortably. I live my day to get through so I can return to my loungewear and my comfy chair and my comfort foods. And, and I think that translates into our relationships too, right? We avoid discomfort by people-pleasing to not rock the boat. I, I don't want to ruffle any feathers, 
or completely respond in the opposite direction to straight up cut people off. I can't deal with the drama or the discomfort. It's my way or I'm out. And I have, I have to wonder if our over-elevation of comfort has contributed to the health crisis of isolation and loneliness that the Surgeon General has just recently reported on, as well as new highs uh, in the estrangements in American families. Uh, we cannot deal with or persist through well the discomfort of those challenges. What about the third frame, distress? I mean, there's plenty to be distressed about if we're looking for it. Uh, it all of this discomfort and uh, inability to deal with it leads to distress. And think about the many tensions of political division, pandemic effects, financial and housing stress, inflation, right? It is safe to say, friends, <laughs> that in January of 2024, we are not our best selves, right? I, I think for most of us, that's probably true. Occurrences in lashing out in restaurants and grocery stores are yet one more thing that has been unprecedented in the last couple of years. There are numerous articles and comments trying to understand the increased anger in our country. This inability to deal with distress. One article in The Atlantic called How America Got Mean contends that we have undervalued moral formation and are reaping the fruit of that. We've not really valued shaping, especially young people, morally um, and helping them to endure and navigate and, and deal well with distress. And so we see this increase in escalation uh, and in outrage. Ed Stetzer wrote a book called Christians in the Age of Outrage that's really helpful for this topic. And he describes outrage like this. It is disproportionate. Uh, so maybe you think about something that's happened and, and your response is just over the top. It doesn't match the offense. It's selfish. Others really no, no one else's interest that's being considered except for your own. It's divisive, uh, looking at whatever has incited this outrage, not at the, the topic or the issue, um, but, but the person. Uh, and so there's divisiveness in that. It's visceral. Um, and so it's reactive. It's not, uh, you know, mindfully responding, but a, a gut reaction. It's domineering, uh, trying to just obliterate whatever the distressing situation is uh, to, to get rid of it and, and conquer it. Uh, and it's dishonest. Uh, we, we can see this in our some of our political and social atmosphere that our quote unquote opponent, um, I, I don't have to treat them fairly in how I judge. I can I can make up the rules that are different uh, in, in judging my myself or my teammates, so to speak, versus the other side. And so it's dishonest. And so we see pressed and pinched people who escalate to this kind of outrage online and in person, right? 
having responses to difficulties, to these difficulties that are just as Ed Stetzer unpacks. They're disproportionate, selfish, divisive, visceral, domineering, and dishonest. Martin Luther wrote this, hardship does not bring us impatience. It only reveals it. I think that's a powerful insight to say in the midst of distress, uh, our, our outrage, when that comes through, um, when that impatience comes through, it was already there. It wasn't distress that did that, but instead that revealed that. And we're just seeing that all over the place today. And then the fourth frame of disillusionment, patience and disillusionment. Uh, when we look around today, <clears throat> there's a lot of sense of disillusionment, of, of apathy. Uh, I work with college students and seeing just this sense of, well, maybe just none of it even matters. And we can find ourselves hopeless at the outlook of the world around us about the next political cycle, about climate change or the inevitable implosion at the annual family Thanksgiving table. Seeing, we're seeing heightened numbers of depression and this apathy, which takes us right back to our pursuit of comfort, right? That sends me crawling back under a blanket to be hummed to sleep by the office theme song. And so with all that good news, right? What is a Christian to do? Well, anecdotally, uh, especially, we're seeing that Christians aren't really responding that much differently to the pressure. Uh, there was an interview that NPR did with Russell Moore, a former leader in the Southern Baptist Convention. And he suggests that Christians are right in the mix, uh, impatient and outraged being formed by these cultural and political and social narratives to the point that the patience that Jesus teaches is offending Jesus's own followers. <laughs> and Moore described in this interview how multiple pastors had shared their experiences of parishioners saying that Jesus's teaching on turning the other cheek doesn't work anymore. Uh, he, he went on to say, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus, the response would be, I have not be, I apologize. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. And when we get to the point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us, then we're in a crisis, Russell Moore says. <clears throat> Our calling as Christians, is to be discipled and formed by a patient Savior, a patient God, more than the impatient and outraged world that we are surrounded by. This is the virtue of patience. Virtue is all about something good and something worthwhile. And perhaps that can be a uh, both what is grown in us as followers of Jesus and also uh, that we can be evidence of that patience can be evidence of goodness in the world and 
even of God. So I want to point us to, um, excuse me, church history, because it is helpful in many ways to give us a glimpse of what this grace looked like under pressure from the early days of the church. As I have had this as a thought project, waiting in patience, just captivated by uh, the lessons that the early church has to offer us uh, in the face of, of this pressure, of these realities today to say, how do we respond as Christians? <clears throat> One of the first early Christian theologians, Origen, said that patience was something that was peculiarly Christian. He echoed the words of Paul, of course, throughout the epistles to talk about the importance of patience, that he described it as a virtue that is uniquely ours, uh, talking about those in the Christian faith. And he used uh, the phrase, a strange patience, that this patience in Christians in the early church was strange to the point of making people curious about them. How could that be the case that these people are so patient and why? There's a wonderful book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. And it unpacks the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire before there was sort of any social gain uh, to be had. Before Rome had embraced Christianity Uh, It was already growing. And Kreider is curious about why would that be the case uh, when, when, you know, your life is going to actually get harder in this situation uh, if you become a Christian. And there's been a lot of talk about the Roman Empire in the last several months and how much we think about it. And I don't think about it a lot, except for when I want to learn about patience of the early church and what that looked like. Uh, But Origen... Um, gives some great insight. Kreider says, when people seek to follow Christ according to origin, God forms them into people who embody this patience. Christ's followers are not in a hurry. They listen carefully when the word is read and preached, and they patiently call to to account straying Christians who attend worship services irregularly. He describes uh, these Christians being yoked with the pace and plans of Jesus. Um, That what people knew about these Christians, the most distinctive thing was their patience, uh, was that they were not in a hurry. Uh, What a, what a description, what a otherworldly sort of a descriptor, I think, for us in in our current moment. He goes on to say, patient believers trust God. When they are subjected to penitential discipline, they patiently bear the judgment made about them, whether they have been rightly or wrongly disposed. Their reflexes are nonviolent. When others treat them violently, they never exact an eye for an eye, but respond in silence and patience and even offer words of blessing. 
that is powerful. <clears throat> and I, I want to highlight the fact that this wasn't cheap patience. <laughs> this wasn't everything was going their way and they had all their comfort foods and leisure wear and all the all the easiest cushy life uh, that allowed for their patients. <clears throat> but quite the opposite. Uh, this was a challenging time to be a Christian uh, where worldviews did not match the culture, uh, where they were outcasted from society and in some places even martyred. And so Tertullian, who was of Carthage, <clears throat> he wrote the first treatise on a virtue, uh, and it was on patience, funny enough. <clears throat> I didn't realize that the first treatise that was written on a virtue was about patience, and so this was an incredible discovery uh, to me personally. And then not too long after, less than, than uh, about 50 years later, um, maybe 60 or 75, <clears throat> Cyprian, of also of Carthage, another theologian, wrote another treatise also on patience called On the Good of Patience. Patience get a, gets a lot of airtime in the early church, and it's because their life was not easy, yet they were focused on habits of patience to endure. <clears throat> So consider through the frame of delay that we were talking about before. Kreider says, the Christians concentrated on developing practices that contributed to habits that characterized both individual Christians and Christian communities. So they're forming, they're forming their rituals and their habit, habitus, their habits, uh, both individually and collectively. <clears throat> And he went on to say, they believed that when the habitus was healthy, the churches would grow. Their theology was unhurried, a theology of patience. Their theology was unhurried, a theology of patience. Think about that in contrast to some of our current church growth strategies. Um, this belief that, hey, if we're, we're of healthy habit and healthy rhythm, that our church is going to grow. And this, funny enough, worked. People were curious about the healthy habits of worship and work and rest and believed that, that, that people would be drawn in by that. They wanted to know more about this holistic, unhurried life of these Christians. <clears throat> but even more so in their evangelism, Kreider says, Christians do what they can to share their faith and to bring people through baptism into the life of God's people, but Christians are not impatient. This is so powerful. Catch this quote. They entrust all things, including their own lives and the salvation of all people to the God who patiently is making all things new. To entrust their own lives, <clears throat> as well as the salvation of those around them, uh, to the God who is patiently making all things new. I think that's so beautiful when we understand this is the God we serve. This is the reality we're invited uh, to live in and to trust in and to believe in. Uh, it, it's a different kind of reality of this setting that we just described today. 
God's reality of abundance uh, and of patience and that he is working for our good uh, is a game changer. And we see that <clears throat> shape the the ability to be patient in delay in these early Christians. Well, let's think about the second frame of discomfort. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got to tickle my throat. <clears throat> Speaking of discomfort, I guess, and patience with that. Thank you for being patient. The second patient or the second frame, discomfort. Kreider writes, if patience is not good in lived experience of humans, it is not worth talking about. So he unpacks here, amidst discomfort, uh, there is demonstrated embodied patience of these early Christians. It wasn't enough to just have writings and treatises, right? And to study the number of times Jesus spoke on or demonstrated patience. This was meant to be practiced. Christians endured being outcasted before Rome, <clears throat> and they held values that differed from the culture. They took care of orphans and cast off children and the sick that nobody wanted anything to do with. And it notes that there was a patience about their own suffering and hardship but also a patience about the suffering of others that was peculiar. And it propelled these Christians to endure discomfort, even with joy. And so their habits of worship and study placed them in God's reality and rhythm uh, to live out abundance and joy, even amidst discomfort. And that was so curious to people. How could you... How could you continue to live out in joy amidst these discomforts and, <clears throat> you know, even to the point of leaning into other people's discomfort and addressing that? I mean, think about the, the earlier quote uh, that even when they were accused of rightly or wrongly, uh, that their reflexes would be nonviolent, even when they were treated violently. They would not exact an eye for an eye, but respond in silence and patience and even offer words of blessing. <clears throat> there was a trust in the Lord uh, to exact vengeance and justice and, and to, to distribute that as God would. Um, the, the patience embodied literally looked like not fighting back, but taking up Jesus's words to love their enemies and bless those who curse. And think about the third frame in distress. So we we kind of are hearing this discomfort really escalate into a distressing level if if there's violence and, and all these types of things. <clears throat> and really the distress was exactly why Cyprian decided to write another treatise on patience shortly after Tertullian had just done so. Um, not, but a few decades before, because he was concerned about Christians uh, losing their sense of patience. Kreider uh, says this in The Patient Ferment, especially in the decades prior to Cyprian's writing, Christians had been through severe testing, 
Some believers were tired. Some were losing hope. Some were in danger of lapsing into impatient practices and even engaging in acts of violent revenge against their enemies. And he thought this was the worst thing, right? If <clears throat> if patience is the strange, uh, unique quality to Christianity and we are losing that sense, um, this is critical. It's, it, uh, it's at a crisis level for Cyprian as he's watching uh, these early Christians in distress really struggle with patience. So he wrote this treatise because things were getting harder for Christians. And he feared uh, that they were going to lose this Christ-like quality of patience, even to the point of exacting revenge. <clears throat> and in the face, so Kreider writes, in the face of these developments, Cyprian may have sensed that patience, the characteristic virtue of the church. Wow, what if what if people would say that about us, right? Patience, the characteristic virtue of the church was under pressure. And he goes on to say, but patience would help his people live as Christians in their pressure-filled situation. Patience would help his people live as Christians in their pressure-filled situation. I think that is true perhaps for us today in our distress that we carry grace under pressure, uh, that we experience grace under pressure. Part of navigating that pressure, uh, some of that solution, some of that tool toolbox kit uh, includes patience. And then we look to the fourth frame of disillusionment in church history. And Kreider raises up Perpetua uh, an early martyr as one such example. She's also of Carthage. <clears throat> An example of this embodied patience. One who did not surrender to disillusionment amidst suffering and misunderstanding of culture, cultural values and misalignment. Uh, but he tells the story of her and a few others who were imprisoned and then sentenced to their death in an arena. And it is a haunting and tragic and upsetting story that is um, glittered with incredible beauty, um, a peculiar patience uh, that is really honestly otherworldly. He tells the story that they were led into the arena and did so arm in arm, which those in the crowd were confused by because when people would be led into an arena to be, you know, honestly attacked by animals for sport, um, they would usually scatter in the arena, right? So um, perhaps the animal will go after you on the other side of the arena and leave me alone. But they found it peculiar that these Christians walked in together arm in arm right next to each other, and they were singing hymns. Those habits of worship, of fellowship and work and rest had acclimated them 
uh, to a different heavenly reality that was more true and more real uh, than the physical space and place they were in. And so there they were arm in arm singing hymns and people in the, the audience were watching disturbed by the sight, uh, not of, you know, people getting attacked by animals, but they were disturbed by the sight of such peace and endurance, almost a wake up call of like, what are we doing? And so worship gave her perpetua tools to live in her truest reality as a secure and loved child of God all the way to her death, singing a patient song until her last breath. I am just mind-boggled and inspired and blown away by her story of like, how how could you... um, get to the point where you could walk into an arena singing, knowing what's coming. Uh, And and so I think these stories are uh, inspirational for us as we look to even an extreme of what Christ-like patience looks like. Our pace and our poise comes from a different reality. We see that in Perpetua's story. It is a reality of that of a God who is good and a gracious provider who's making all things new. This is a God of abundance and not of lack. And so even in the most distressing and even disillusioning moments, we can trust that there there is a truer reality of abundance. Um, There is another song. Talk about Perpetua singing her last song, there is another song of patience. Uh, It's not the office in our current cultural moment that comes to my mind. It's a song called Wait For It by or from one Aaron Burr, sir, from the show Hamilton. And while the character and based off of the historical figure, Aaron Burr, spends an entire belting solo talking about his own virtuous patience, unlike Mr. Hamilton, thank you very much, he really is not patient at all. Even though the song is called Wait For It, Burr actually couldn't wait for it. Like, think of our four frames. In terms of delay, he sings, I'm willing to wait for it. Um, No. Not when it comes to someone else's wife or changing parties uh, to be able to win an elected seat. Um, Think about discomfort. He, one of his signature lines, Burr's signature lines is, talk less, smile more. He's a guy that that tells the people what they want to hear. He doesn't want to go against the grain. He wants to be liked. Think about distress. His distress comes in the fact that unlike Hamilton, Burr lives like he does have something to prove and something to lose, which leads him, spoiler alert, to shoot and kill Hamilton. It's American history, so if you didn't 
know that already. I don't feel too responsible. And his clarity in the end of the show, he realizes his disillusion led him to be the villain in your history. He goes on to say, I should have known that there was enough room for Hamilton and me. This is a song of false patience uh, to say, oh, look how patient I am, but actually, no. And Alexander Hamilton is also no saint, right? We know this, <clears throat> nor an example of patience. He's always writing like he's running out of time, if you're familiar with the show. But Eliza Hamilton, on the other hand, Hamilton's wife, is actually an incredible example. She uh, talks about, she sings about to take a break. Let's take a break. She encourages Hamilton to let it be enough. And she doesn't people please or overlook Hamilton's infidelity. But she endures loss. She embraces forgiveness. And she starts orphanages and raises children after Hamilton died. <clears throat> Eliza Hamilton was a well-documented devout Christian in, in actuality. So much so that it comes through in the Broadway show. She is adhering to a different type of reality. Something curious and peculiar in her patience and her grace. And some even speculate, I kind of love this, <clears throat> that one of the reasons the show is simply called Hamilton is that she is the actual protagonist and that it's her story of patience and grace under pressure that is getting told. There are a myriad of examples of this Christian patience, this this unique attribute of God's people. Uh, even in the even in the scriptures, we see patience and delay with Abraham and Sarah waiting for a child, right? Uh, can you imagine the patience and discomfort that Mary and Joseph had to have with conversations and in their community and all these kinds of things? Yeah, I'm sure there was a lot. Uh, think about the patience in distress with Daniel, with Stephen uh, being the first martyr. Even patience in disillusionment, Habakkuk is wrestling with the depravity and, and evil in the world and asking desperately that God would hurry up and deal with it. But he comes around in this beautiful closing of that book to say, you know what, even so, I'm going to praise you. And then there's another person in the scriptures that shows incredible patience. There's God, the true patient one, the one that this story is actually about. Kreider from the patient ferment of the early church says this, Cyprian joins Tertullian in asserting that patience is an attribute of God. In fact, patience is a virtue that Christians have in common with God. 
Do you know what that sounds like to me? It's that patience is our family trait. It is our legacy. Uh, for me and my family, it's height and long, a, a nice long neck. And uh, some of us have big noses. Uh, but the family of God, one of our primary traits that people would know, uh, scripture says they'll know we were Christians by our love, and also this peculiar patience. This is a part of our family legacy. <clears throat> one of the books that I have most handed out in my uh, over 10 years of ministry with college students is a book called Uninvited by uh, Lisa Turkhurst. <clears throat> it's delightful. I'd encourage you to read it. But she uh, has this snippet where she's talking about Psalm 23 and this, this kind of depth of God's character on display in this passage. And she says, David started this stunning soul declaration with the assurance that with God, there is fullness. There is no lack. Nothing can be added or subtracted with human acceptance or rejection. With the fullness of God, we are free to let humans be humans, fickle and fragile and forgetful. I love that quote. Uh, there is no lack in Psalm 23. I, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Uh, in the fullness of God for us, friends, there is no lack, which wars against every sort of temptation to believe otherwise that I'm out of time, that I'm out of patience, that I'm out of energy, that I'm out of hope. But with God, when we know our spot and our place in his family, that he is the good giver and provider and restorer who gives us a place in his family and in his house, he can be patient. Uh, think about this most extravagant home and party and the lavish food and conversation and relationship the very best things, think of and imagine all of those things. This best life in God's house, in God's family. And with him, there's always more where that came from. There's always more waiting in the back in God's house. In food, in endurance, in creativity, to figure things out, to fix stuff, to restore things. And so with that in mind, the fullness of God sets us free. I am set free to let humans be humans, fickle and fragile and forgetful. Because I live in a house of abundance. I am a child of one who holds all things in his hands. He's never lacking for anything. He's never... Um, surprised or caught off guard or running out. And so then I can lower my shoulders. I can take a deep breath and slow down. I can be a little bit more steady, a little bit more sturdy and enduring because I know there is no lack. Uh, so I don't have to live like that. God's kids don't have to live like that. Turkus goes on to say that 
his love, God's love in our minds becomes a reality that anchors us. His love is a glorious weight preventing the harsh words and hurtful situations from being a destructive force. We feel the wind, but we aren't destroyed by it, end quote. Uh, the reality that God's love for us anchors us. Uh, it's not that we don't know what's going on or, you know, that the people in the early church didn't know what people were saying about them or feel rejected. Um, but that they're not destroyed by it, that we're sturdy. This is the gift of God's love of being, scripture talks about being rooted uh, and grounded in how high, how deep, how long, how wide is this love of God and this reality that we get to live in changes everything. It changes who we are and how we roll and the values uh, that we live in. And let me tell you, they are totally different <laughs> than what we described and know around us, totally countercultural. So let's think about that for just a moment. What does this look like in Christian practice? You know, we've talked about all these pieces, but what does this look like today and now? And in our first frame of delay, uh, I, I know that for delay for me, I have some work to do because sometimes I am impatient and I am tossed about, uh, honestly on the way to the mockingbird conference in September that morning, I was driving to the conference to give this presentation and I like honked at someone in traffic on the way there. And I was like, Oh, that's just an object lesson to say that I have not got this patience thing all figured out because they were taking a little bit longer at a green light than I would have thought was helpful. And so I think I'm doing pretty good in my delay, my patience and delay until someone steps in front of me in line or leaves me out or tears me down without hearing me out. <clears throat> I actually told a friend recently, I am really going to need the Lord to speed up my sanctification. So not only am I impatient, but I am impatient about my impatience. So if you are any, any, uh, like me, uh, you might say, how, how do I begin a building a patience that could look anything like these early Christians and their inspiration? And I think, uh, we can learn something from their, their tendencies and their practices to be yoked with the pace and plans of Jesus. Practices of slowing, these spiritual practices that the early church embraced. A worship and study, of course, I think that's a great start. Thinking about the rhythm of Sabbath rest to take a day each week where my only identity uh, is to be beloved in Christ, um, that, that I can undo this identity of productivity, but rest, to reset in this rhythm, and to live in God's unrushed reality. Uh, sometimes this looks like embracing our finiteness, uh, to say that, yeah, I am only a one person with so many days a week and so many hours in a day, and to not try to cram 
more than I am and more than I'm capable of into that, that I can be unrushed, uh, that my calendar and what I'm able to accomplish uh, is not where my identity comes from. That is not the reality I live in. And that I can submit myself to God's way and God's timing. And ultimately, patience is a fruit of the spirit, right? And so uh, the fruits of the spirit show up and are worked out in us by the Lord when they're needed. So we grow in our fruit of patience when we start putting ourselves in positions and places of delay. Um, I, I think about uh, the the lessons that I get to teach with college students who are learning some of these uh, grown-up skills for the first time and sitting with them, and and that slows me down. Um, my mom, she's so sweet. I got an iPhone a couple of years ago, and she was you know, so grateful that I would be willing to sit with her, but it was a practice of, I have to slow down in order to bring you along and invite you along in this. Um, and, and that can be really, really challenging. Um, and the people, honestly, when I think today about who, who are beautiful examples of Christian patience and delay today, I am immediately reminded of my friends who are in the midst of adoption processes. I have several at the moment in different parts of that process. And it is absolute patience of love, just a, a patient love in that. And it begs us the question, uh, do I trust God's provision? Do I trust God's timing? Because if I do, then that allows me to be patient in waiting because I know, I know he's not going to be late and I know he's going to come through that his abundance is more real than the urgency or scarcity that I experience sometimes. So think about our second frame, a uh, discomfort. What does this look like in our Christian practice? I would offer that. I think it, it looks like staying present amidst tension when interviewed about her leaving her denomination of her upbringing and career, Beth Moore encouraged that as Christians, while sometimes we have to walk away from things, our default is to stay. Wow. I wonder if that is true for us as we take a moment to reflect. Of course, there are going to be times like the best thing that needs to happen is to leave. That's what happened with her. Uh, but she she expre expresses in that that our default ought to be first to stay. So for us, what does it mean to default to stay in conversations that challenge us? In relationships that just grate and rub? <clears throat> in churches that aren't perfect? In communities that have hardships and struggles? In neighborhoods that have challenges? Not in an appeasing way or with our eyes closed to say everything is okay, but that we don't give up easily under pressure, that we are hardy. Um, we stay patient and gracious, as is our family trait in Christ. One of the Bible passages that gets taken out of 
context <clears throat> terribly is First uh, Corinthians four twelve. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Paul isn't talking about you know like how much weight I can lift or how fast I can run. Uh, I think I had some sports items, athletic items in high school that had that verse on it. Um, that's not what it's talking about. He's talking about contentment uh, that I can endure, that I can do. I, I can be content with a lot or with a little, you know, describing all of these discomforts that Paul endured and saying, I can do that because Christ has strengthened me to do that. I can do hard things in Christ and building up that ability to handle hard things. Think about um, the thousands of people in this country every year that run marathons. I am not one of those people. I feel pretty set free about not ever having to be one of those people. But when they get to the starting line, uh, that is not the first time they've ever ran. Uh, they have put in miles and miles and hours and hours of running uh, before the race even begins. They don't step up to the starting line the first time they've ran expecting to finish well and without chaos. And so I say that to say the more we endure discomfort, the more we can endure discomfort. The more we can handle, the more we can handle. And so maybe it means, um, especially when we're in difficult conflicts or conversations, set a timer for a few minutes of persisting through a challenging conversation. I've encouraged uh, some of my students who have conflict with roommates or uh, people who share different viewpoints, set a timer for 15 minutes. See if you can endure the awkward, challenging conversation for that long and then go from there. I have a I had a student in class uh, this last semester, a class called Engaging God's Mission. <clears throat> and we'll call him Mike uh, to protect the names of the undergrads. And Mike came into class one day and he was so excited uh, to share. We would often share stories of um, what conversations are you having this? Have you had this week with people um, in your out in, in the part of your life or the relationships you have with people who don't know Jesus yet as, as um, their savior? And so he came in, Professor Schwalm, I have this story. I'm so excited to share. There was a guy who lived on my floor and he came over and he had all of these just arrows to come at me about being a Christian and <clears throat> challenging and, and looking to catch me and come at me in that and even insult me. And I just took a deep breath and I remembered that if God is patient, I can be patient and he said that two, about two hours went by that they just talked and he listened well and asked questions. And he said, Professor Schwamm, a couple hours later, uh, this friend said, hey, I have to go, uh, but can we keep talking about this? I want to, I want to come back to this conversation and talk some more about it. And I was just blown away by this beautiful demonstration of strange patience uh, 
in this era, in this time, when somebody is totally coming at us uh, to slow down and just receive it, uh, to be steady and calm and regulated, uh, to be able to ask curious questions and open a conversation instead of close one. And I, I told Mike, I said, I wonder if the patience that your friend experienced from you, this peculiar patience, might have led him to consider if there is a patient God uh, and seeing this glimmer of patience in somebody who follows Jesus that, oh, maybe Jesus could actually be patient with somebody like me. You can uh, read and research story after story of people who have changed in heart uh, through the gentle and strong uh, patience of somebody. Uh, I read a story not so long ago about uh, a neo-Nazi in prison who um, came to change and, and transform, his, his viewpoint transformed by somebody who was slow uh, to to engage with him and and really has altered his life both as a now a follower of Jesus but also an advocate to to help others who are um, stuck in really dysfunctional and and um, unhealthy and hateful viewpoints um, to be able to consider something different. What incredible grace through that patience. And think about this third frame of distress because our discomfort escalates to that distress. And I think about <clears throat> my own ability uh, as things escalate into distress, like what's my inclination? Can I stay present? And in my anger, uh, can I refrain from sin and violence in my thoughts and words and deeds, especially, you know, as things get really heated um, in our families or politics or things like that, can I, much like Cyprian, um, encourage these early Christians under a lot of pressure uh, to stay patient and to resist the temptation of, of violence and, and a haughty response? Rich Viotis, a pastor who has a, a pretty big online following, that I really appreciate a lot of things he shares. He wrote, in a world torn by rage and anxiety, one of the greatest gifts followers of Jesus are called to offer is calm and curious presence. Not a presence removed from this reality, but a presence that refuses to be shaped by reactivity. We're not just putting on blinders about what's going on, but refusing to be shaped by just a reactiveness that I'm not discipled um, and made and imaged by the world, uh, but discipled by Jesus, by a, a calm and a curiosity and uh, not just being quick to, to speak, uh, quick to judge, um, quick to be angry. Uh, Ed Stetzer, in the book I referenced earlier, Christians in the Age of Outrage, <clears throat> he encourages Christians in distress to sift out 
their outrage. And he does this by three suggestions. To be quick to listen and slow to anger, as James 1 would suggest. To reject the impulse to right every wrong. You know, this this kind of thing that um, to choose our battles, what we're what we're really going to lean into. <clears throat> uh, I, I have heard this statement, this comment a lot in the last couple of years. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And I've tried to understand why this phrase bristles me so much. And I wonder if our goal as Christians could be instead, if you're not grateful, you're not paying attention. It's not saying there aren't things to be angry about. There are lots of things to be angry about, uh, for sure. But if we trust, like we're talking about, this reality of God's abundance and God's goodness, and that is not dependent upon the depravity of the world and the dysfunction that's going on, then there's also so much to be grateful for. And perhaps gratitude can beget our patience. Uh, And if we want to be angry, right, if there are things, which there are things, injustice and and such uh, to be angry about, this is how God is angry, (laughs) that he's quick to listen, that he's slow, slow to anger, that God is slow to anger. Uh, We hear that throughout the scriptures, that God is slow uh, to anger and abounding in love. And lastly, the third point, uh, Stetzer encourages us to think through what you're trying to accomplish. So if I'm just totally outraged in my distress, what am I trying to accomplish? Am I just trying to, you know, blow off steam and I don't care who I wreck uh, in the midst of it? What's the goal? What are you going to accomplish with exploding in outrage? Honey attracts better than vinegar, right? It doesn't seem like many people will be won over by outrage or violence or vitriol online. And you know what? Maybe if if nothing else is working, strange patience is worth a try. And it goes back to the question, do I trust God to handle vengeance and justice? Do I trust that he is working out all things to become new? And that tees us up for our fourth frame. What does Christian practice look like amidst the temptation toward disillusionment? Because, um, you know, there's a lot to get distraught about and just write it all off, like, just kind of a mindset of, oh, we're just waiting it out until heaven comes. And and I think that this hope that we have in Christ, that the tomb is empty uh, and all things are being made new, hope is revolutionary patience. It brings revolutionary patience because this hope that we have, scripture says, it doesn't disappoint. And so that gives us this patience in a just a way that doesn't even make sense. <clears throat> it is it is important and essential that we push back against disillusionment and cling to hope. Uh, we have the one true hope for the world in Jesus. 
And it's not like those who follow him to just forfeit and say, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. So I'll just go to my room and wait until Jesus gets back, turn on some office. And honestly, we might justifiably run out of patience for this world. There are days, right? We have access to dysfunction and death and chaos and hunger and all the worst things globally 24-7, which none of us, by the way, were made to hold that. There's a gift of vocation to say, I can only do and deal with what's in my circle, what's in my sphere. And when I get too far zoomed outside of that, disillusionment is just really accessible uh, along with all the news, all the bad news. So it's understandable that we can run out of patience for this world. But you know who hasn't? The one who made it and redeemed it and is making it new. His patience is mercy that many might be restored. Um, Talks about that in the epistles. God isn't being slow on his promise, but his patience, and therefore then maybe our patience, is all about giving lots of opportunity for those to experience the mercy and kindness and grace of God. When I struggle with impatience about the world, I have to ask, do I believe the gospel is true for the world? Do I believe that God is going to come through? This hope as an anchor, as Hebrews says, is sure and certain, and it gives us patience to endure and to not lose heart um, because the one who has overcome the world is making it new. Now we could uh, leave all of this to say, oh man, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm equipped to deal with today and, and to be gracious under pressure. I'm not sure I can live up to the expectation of those throughout church history. And now I have this to-do list of what uh, patience can look like. And maybe that can just leave you kind of heavy. And I struggle just like you uh, with these areas of patience in delay and in discomfort and in distress and in disillusionment. I struggle with patience for my neighbor and for my neighborhood sometimes. Uh, for my church, for the church, for the world, for my country, you know, you fill in the blank. And I also realized I struggle with patience for myself. I, uh, several months ago, I started a new job for the first time in a decade, and I came home on more than one occasion and just crumbled in a puddle feeling like I was failing. You know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm used to being competent at my job. Uh, I have writing deadlines that are past due. I have godchildren I haven't seen in months and months. And I have um, friends who I've not texted back and um, students whose emails I haven't returned and so many things that aren't graded. And I just thought I am failing. 
And I realized I have no patience for me to be in progress. I have no patience for my impatience. And if you can relate to that, if you resonate with that feeling of not measuring up, of just being all done, like, I can't do hard things uh, and I'm failing, I'm failing under pressure. I want to invite you to experience God's grace. One of the ways we do this and we see this in the early church too is uh, we get to remind each other of God's reality and patience that we live in, that we live in this abundant house of the Father who's not concerned. He's not surprised. He's not rushed. He is totally unhindered by my lack and by my patience. His patience is stubborn and persistent, uh, even when I am failing. And so the gift in some of those moments was to hear friends um, and loved ones remind me that even though I wasn't measuring up, (laughs) first of all, there's room for growth, right? Like there's space for that and grace for that uh, to be a work in progress. But even when I wasn't measuring up, God's patience is fully and thoroughly for me. Because friends, if if it's all about like how I'm doing um, and, you know, I got to really work up my, my Christian witness of my virtue of patience <clears throat> so that the world can see, that's just not going to go well. But the story is about him. When I struggle to show patience, I must go back to experiencing the patience I've been shown. (laughs) And so it, it begs the question, do I know, do you know God's peculiar patience for you? Do I know God's peculiar patience for me? Do we know, have we experienced God's peculiar patience that's unlike anything else that that the God of the universe would leave his throne to step in our mess right with us, not to shame us or say, why haven't you figured it out yet? But to say, you know, let me, let me walk this road with you and then for you. Every time I've mumbled about a slow cashier or an act of disrespect, or treated the person uh, the in line in front of me more as um, an inconvenience than, you know, a human being. Or the outrageous claim of somebody that I disagree with that I just can't handle. Every time that happens, God shows me patience. And so I get to pay attention that he has put himself in my narrative as grace, as patience. Friends, patience of the Christian, our witness of patience isn't about how good we are at being patient, but about living in God's patience, living in his character of patience. The late Eugene Peterson wrote a wonderful book called 
a long obedience in the same direction, discipleship for an instant society. It's so good. I'd totally recommend it. But he wrote this toward the end. Perseverance is not the result of our determination. It is the result of God's faithfulness. We survive in the way of faith, not because we have extraordinary stamina, but because God is righteous. Because God sticks with us. Isn't that so good? We persist, we endure because God sticks with us. God sticks with you. Day in, day out, regardless, uh, he is your grace under pressure. He is your patience. And he gives you incredible strength and patience. Peterson goes, Peterson goes on to say this, <clears throat> that he sticks with us is the reason Christians can look back over a long life crisscrossed with cruelties unannounced tragedies, unexpected setbacks, sufferings and disappointments and depressions. You can look back across all of that and see it as a road of blessing and make a song out of what we see. I love that. That in a a world today and a time where there is instant gratification. Um, dealing with our discomfort by clinging to other comforts. Um, outrage in the midst of distress and the temptation for unraveling into total disillusionment. I just wonder if a glimmer of patience in us, reflecting the depth of patience and sticking to us of our God just could be the very good news our word our world needs to hear. That we could be a peculiar, patient reflection of God's goodness to make people wonder, wow, they're unrushed, they're unpressed, uh, they're unstressed. Uh, and even when they are all of those things, pressed, stressed, and rushed, uh, the way they receive and rest in grace is different uh, because this God is just that different. I love that what Peterson says that we can look back and see it all as a road of blessing and make a song out of what we sing out of what we see. And so as we walk in life and into our death, it's in that reality that we can sing like Perpetua. And we remind ourselves that we live in the realities of heaven. We're not humming along uh, necessarily. We're not humming along the, the tune of the office or a misleading, disingenuous wait for it that paints us as more patient than we actually are. But perhaps uh, we walk along singing a hymn like this one. 
Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best I have, me friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. God, we praise you for your patient endurance and love in our lives, uh, not begrudgingly, but with joy, that we are the joy set before you as Christ endured the cross, uh, scorning its shame. God, would you instill in us this fruit of patience, not for our own glory, but for the good of our neighbor. And that just perhaps there might be curiosity and openness and consideration of the goodness of you, God, I draw many to know you in this in this time in our communities, uh, God, that we could be a glimpse of your grace and your patience amidst many pressures to point to your different heavenly reality that has come and is coming. And it's all because of Jesus and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.